6th chapter tonight. Mark chapter 6. And um, we'll begin at verse number 1. Mark chapter 6 and verse number 1. Amen. It says, Then he went out from there and came to his own country, and his disciples followed him. And when the Sabbath had come, he began to teach in the synagogue, and many hearing him were astonished, saying, <coughs> Excuse me, where did this man get these things? And what wisdom is this with, which is given to him, that such mighty works are performed by his hands? Is this not the carpenter, the son of Mary, and brother of James, Joseph, Judas, and Simon, and are not his sisters here with us? So they were offended at him. So they were offended at him. Wow. Let me keep reading. We'll come back to that. So they were offended at him. But Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor except in his own country, among his own relatives, and in his own house. Now he could do no mighty work there, except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them. I think it's interesting to note um, expositors, and I've mentioned that once before, that's a um, whole set of like think encyclopedias for those of you who are, you know, um, I guess what, 40 or older, you know, <laughs> back when you used to use encyclopedias, before Google for this younger generation, right? You'd have a lot of volumes of books. Well, expositors is a whole set of books that, that um, exposit or explain or expound upon the scriptures. And expositors points out that that word could do no um, mighty work there. Uh, I believe it's Weist. He, he says not even one. In other words, that, that is a very uh, emphatic, uh, in the original language, a very emphatic uh, expression of no. Um, there was, if it was to be literally translated, um, we would say not even one, not a single one. Um, nary a one, we might say it that way, okay? Um, except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them. And the sick people here are referring to people who were in a state or condition of weakness. And, um, and so anyway, Weist was, Weist was the one who translated that word, the, the emphatic, not even one. And it was expositors who pointed this out, that the people were so, um, you know, just, in other words, they didn't even bring their sick people to Jesus to see if he could heal them. You know, other places we see Jesus would come, man, people would be bringing sick folk left and right, you know, um, for Jesus to heal them. But when he came to Nazareth, they didn't even bring sick people to him to heal them. It's, it's how sure they were that he... Um, was not the Messiah that he had been, he had been uh, received as in other places. Verse number 6, And he marveled because of their unbelief. Then he went about the villages in a circuit teaching. Now, I know that there are people who get nervous when we talk about these things, and, and probably not you, but, but let me just go ahead and say that you know, what Jesus did on this earth, he did as a man. Um, in right standing with God, full of the Holy Spirit. You would think, well, you know, how could he be astonished at anything? He's the omniscient, all-knowing God. Well, as a man, he knew what God the Father showed him, just like me and you. And it's clearly um, 
you know, obvious here that he was expecting a different reception and response when he went home to Nazareth. When it says that, that he was, that he marveled, it literally means he was, he was astonished. They were astonished at, at what he was saying and doing, and he was astonished at their unbelief. So obviously, you know, they're not on the same page here. I'm not even sure they're in the same library, much less the same page of the same book. All right, so there's a lot that we could talk about from this. I, I want to I continue this evening on something we've referred to a time or two already. And that is, I want us to pay close attention to the attitude of these people. We finished the morning sermon talking about Jesus' first sermon. Um, we had waited all these years for him to arrive, and, and, and so he finally you know, arrives after Father God said in the Garden of Eden he was coming. And you know, we're talking about literally thousands of years. And, and so now he's finally here, but because he was born under the law, he had to wait until he was 30 to begin an earthly ministry. So now he turns 30, and he's baptized in water. He's baptized in the Holy Spirit. He goes and is led away to be tempted. And, and so he begins his earthly ministry, and, and he preaches his first sermon, and the first point of his first sermon is attitude. Now, I know that when we start talking about attitude, it, it can be one of those... <laughs> Excuse me. It can be one of those things that are, that are you know a little challenging to, to define, understand. We all know an attitude when we see one, right? A good one or a bad one. Um, but I believe the reason Jesus began that first sermon on that subject is because the, the attitude in a person's heart determines how that person responds. So if our attitude is wrong, our response is going to be wrong. If our attitude is wrong, our response is going to be wrong. And now clearly, if you look at these first six verses here in the, in, in the sixth chapter of the book of Mark, we see that the attitude of these people in Jesus' hometown, even his own family, even his own half-brothers and sisters, their attitude towards him was wrong. Um, in other words, the way they responded to him was wrong uh, to the point that Jesus was astonished at their level of unbelief. Unbelief like he had not yet seen, I believe, on, on planet Earth. The opposite of that, of course, is the centurion soldier who did give Jesus place. We'll talk about him later, but he did give Jesus place. And remember, Jesus marveled at his faith. Jesus was astonished at this man's level of faith. So we see two opposite ends of the spectrum here. And notice giving, giving Jesus place or failing to give him place is directly responsible for um, the faith or the unbelief uh, that we see. All right, let's keep going here. So we've said this, and I'm not trying to be funny with this. I really feel like the Holy Spirit spoke that to me. Attitude is the gumbo of the soul. Attitude is the gumbo of the soul. John Smith just got back from uh, Louisiana. Did you have any gumbo when he was down there, brother? I bet you did, yeah. So if you understand what gumbo is, it's a lot of different ingredients go into a pot of gumbo. And, you know, when we talk about attitude, we're not talking about something you can go to the store and buy one of. And we're talking about something internal, something inward, something that is a part of the soul, something that comes forth from the soul, from the inward man. And attitude is the gumbo of the soul. And what we mean by that is there's many different things that go into the pot, if you will, that forms a person's attitude. 
This is why attitude is hard to define. And in this, all these ingredients that would make a person's attitude, it's things like knowledge. In other words, what you know about a person, what you know about a situation, or what you are, are the lack thereof. Your individual beliefs, your intellect, your education, experiences that you've had, interests that you have, your own personality, your emotional makeup, etc. All these things combine together to influence and form our attitude. But the single most powerful uh, ingredient in the, in the gumbo that is our attitude is our opinions. Our opinions. The opinion that we have of a thing or of a situation. So the point is simply this. One ingredient has more impact on attitude than any of the others, and that is our opinions. And your opinion, by definition, is a view, judgment, or belief formed about something, but not necessarily based upon fact or truth. Not necessarily formed I mean, not necessarily based upon fact or truth. Now, I want to go back, if we could, just take a brief side journey. And um, I want to draw your attention tonight to a passage out of the book of James. James chapter 1, verse 17. In James 1 and 17, it says this, Every good and every perfect gift is from above and comes down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variableness, neither shadow of turning. With whom there is no variableness, neither shadow of turning. Some translations take variableness, you know, translated a little further into variations, okay? I like the King James Version here because of the use of the word variableness, neither shadow of turning. That expression, neither shadow of turning, it comes from the days when we told time on a sundial. And if you understand how a sundial works, it's, a, it's a, like a clock face, but in the middle of it, it, it has a triangle type thing that's, you know, propped up in the middle of it. And it's positioned in such a way as the sun moves across the sky, it casts a shadow on the dial, and that gives you some rough estimate of what time it is during the day. When the sun is directly above the sundial, it casts no shadow on the sundial. In other words, it's, there's no shadow of turning on the dial, which means the sun is at its highest point in the sky. So when the scriptures say of our heavenly father, in him there is no variableness, neither shadow of turning, what he's saying is that basically we might, we, we might say it this way. He's always at the top of his game. He's always at his highest and best. That our heavenly father never has a bad day. He never wakes up on the wrong side of the bed. He's never in a bad mood. He, you know, he, he never has a day where he's just you know, a little sluggish. And you know, in athletics, we may, somebody, we may say somebody goes into a slump, you know, really good hitter or pitcher goes through a, you know, a few weeks where they're just not crisp or sharp with their breaking ball or they you know, strike it out a lot, what have you. And you know, again, in, in natural physical life, um, we see that, that life has its ups and downs like this. But he's saying that we should never think of God as being in that same category, that he's always at his peak. He's always at his best. He's always on top of his game. He always gets it right. He never makes a mistake. He never, are you, are you following what I'm saying? Not 98% of the time, 100% of the time. That's why there's no variation in him. There's no variableness in him. Hebrews says it this way, he's the same yesterday, today, and forever. Amen. So 
if we think in, in, in this, and, and the Holy Spirit, you know, revealed this to me many years ago, and um, I want you to think of your life as an equation. Matter of fact, I'll put a simple math equation on the board. And, um, and so in this equation, it says 10 plus X equals, and then there's a blank. And you like, well, what's the answer here? Well, it depends on what X is, right? If X is five, then the answer is 15. If X is 100, then the answer is 110. But in this equation, there is both a constant and a variable. The constant is the number 10 in this example, right? In other words, that never changes. It stays the same. But then the variable is represented by the letter. It's not represented by numbers. It's represented by a letter. And the only way to know the answer to this equation is, is, um, is to know what you're going to plug in for the variable. Now, why am I showing you this? I'm showing you this because I just want to either, either explain it to you for the first time tonight, or for those of you who've heard me teaching this before, just give you a reminder and a refresher. Then when it comes to your life equation, you hold all the variables. When it comes to your life equation, you hold all the variables. See, we're constantly trying to say that, that variations in life, and, and this is where... Sunday, uh, you know, teaching series and Wednesday teaching series kind of intersect with one another. We're always trying to ascribe the randomness in life to God. We're always trying to say crazy things like, you know, you just never know what God's going to do. And, and, and we respond to what appears to be chaos or randomness in life, you know, with all these different kinds of expressions. But please hear me. God is always at the peak of His glory. He's always on top of His game. He's always at His highest and best. And on His side of your life equation, He's the constant. There, he, there is no variableness with Him. Amen. The variableness is with us, right? We're the ones that can be all over the map at times. We're the ones that are still growing up in our consistency. We're the ones that are still becoming more mature in, how we, in the things that we say and the things that we do and the choices that we make. But you hold, I hold all the variables when it comes to my life. And so, you know, there are certain things that we can insert into our life equation that, that will uh, produce God's results in our lives. And there are things we can insert into our life equation that will produce all kinds of negative results in, um, in our lives. Amen. I really feel like the Holy Spirit told me to do this during praise and worship. And he just prompted me to, and reminded me again. And that is to say thank you for giving him this place in your life tonight. You could have given other things or other people this time, but you chose to give him this time and chose him to give, give him this place. And he wants you to know that he appreciates it. And I certainly um, echo that as well. But notice, th this was a variable. What you did with your time tonight was a variable. You could have been somewhere watching television, somewhere taking a nap, somewhere eating cream-filled donuts, you know, somewhere doing whatever else, right? Anything but this. But your choice to be here plugged something into your life equation that, that the constant in your life equation can do something with to make a better outcome for you both now and in the future. Are you seeing this? See, the devil never wants you to understand this. He wants us to all, he, he wants us to, to think, and this is another phrase that the Lord has, has dropped into our spirits on Wednesday nights, right? He wants us to view life as something that happens to us. That we're just here, you know, what's the Kansas song? Dust in the wind, right? 
We just dust in the wind, man. Just, you know, whatever blows down the next, you know, few days in our lives is going to take us wherever it wants to take us. No, no, no. We were never meant to be at the mercy of life. We were meant to rule and reign in life. We were never created to, 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 to live in such a way as for life to just happen to us. But we were to things, what did he say in, to Adam in the garden? If something gets out of line, you subdue it. You take dominion. You take authority. And, and so, again, um, it's, it's, a, it's a completely different understanding of the way things really are. And the devil doesn't want you to understand this. Listen, it was a wonderful day for me when I understood that there were things that I could do deliberately, intentionally, on purpose, inserting those things into my life equation, giving Father God something to place, something to work. Listen, does, this is a whole other side of this teaching that we haven't gotten to yet. We're talking about giving Father the place, giving God the place, giving Jesus the place, giving the Holy Spirit the place in our lives that He deserves. But do you realize the same Bible that tells us about giving Him place in our lives also at the same time says to you and me, do not give the devil any place in your life. Don't give Him any place in your life. Right before Jesus went to the cross, He told His disciples, He said, the ruler of this world is coming for me, but He has nothing in me. In other words, Jesus had not given him one microscop, microscopic part, portion of an inch. You know, so he didn't just, he hadn't, you know, said, don't give him an inch. Jesus didn't even give him a, a millimeter. Jesus didn't give him a, a, a fraction. Gave him no place. Amen. See, we, we, we wonder why, you know, the enemy's doing this. And he's, he's it, it, you know, we need to see if we're giving him place somewhere to do what he's doing in our lives. Right? So when we talk about this life equation and, and all the different variables, again, you hold all the variables in your life equation. Don't, don't let that. Let's go, back to, um, let's go back to the people in Nazareth. Jesus was this um, big word like mayonnaise. He was this anomaly. In other words, he... He, he was, they couldn't explain him. They, they, in their minds, they could not, you know, figure out how he worked among them for practically 30 years as a carpenter. We might say it this way, as a tradesman, as a laborer, skilled laborer. For 30 years. Then all of a sudden he has some kind of midlife crisis or something. And he's, you know, he, he, he goes and gets caught up in that crazy guy named John the Baptist. And he gets baptized in water. And then he went and fasted and lost all that weight. And, and you know, and now he's got a posse following him around. And, and um, in other words, they, they could not explain what was going on with him. And so they chose to reject him because they couldn't explain it. So it didn't make sense to them. You know, they, they listen, I'm getting ahead of myself, but, but notice what they said. They, they, they marveled. They, they were astonished. They were amazed. They asked the question, where does this man get these things? Do you realize what they were saying there? 
they're saying he's a man, but he's, he's saying things that, that you don't just find in any book. You don't, in other words, remember even his enemies, even his enemies, people who were trying and plotting against him to kill him, they said two things about him. They said, they said number one, never a man spoke like this man spoke. These are people who hated his guts. These weren't people who were friendly, you know, giving him five-star reviews on, on uh, Amazon or something. Okay, these, these guys were, they hated his guts, but they said, you know, no man's ever done, ever spoke like this man has spoken. But then the other thing, of course, that they said was that he undeniably did miracles. It, it wasn't like they, they just thought it was all some kind of, you know, uh, trick or, you know, some kind of setup or some kind of scam. No, no, no. I mean, th th these were people that these religious leaders knew were born blind. These were people these religious leaders knew were paralyzed in accidents. Th these were people that the religious leaders knew were like dead. And Jesus gave them back their sight. Jesus healed them and restored them back to strength and health. Jesus even raised them from the dead. There was no denying that Lazarus was dead. He'd been dead four days. His body had already begun to rot. He, it, it literally, this, if you've ever smelt something dead, you know the smell of something dead, right? In this case, it was, a, I don't know how much he weighed, 150, 220 pound man that was dead, hole in the side of a cliff, right? Rottening. So this, this idea that, that they just weren't sure about it. <laughs> no, they knew. The people at Nazareth knew. They didn't ask, like questioning his ability to do these things. As we pointed out this morning, there was an exclamation point at the end of what they said, not a question mark. But yet they were offended at him. Their opinion of him, which is the key ingredient in, in your attitude towards a thing, towards a person, which your attitude determines your response, right? Their opinion of him blinded them. I'll quote the Bible now to the truth that was right in front of their face, that was set forth right in front of them. They, they, couldn't, they couldn't get past it, and so they just chose to reject him altogether. Now, what does this have to do with variables and life equation and attitude? We're all over the map this evening, Pastor Mark. Well, let's try to put a bow on this before we're done. You hold all the variables in your life equation. And the most powerful variable that you control is your response. The way you respond in life is the most powerful variable that you hold in your hands. Look, we're all adults here tonight. Let's, let's just go ahead and come to terms with it. We can't control what other people do. We can't control what other people say. We can't control what other people think. That doesn't mean that we can't offer truth and speak the truth in love. That, don't mean, that doesn't mean that we're just supposed to agree with everything. That's not what I'm saying. But 
But we can't control, nor is it our job to try and control what, what other people do, what other people think, what other people say about us or things that they may do in life, choices they may make in life that negatively af affect us. We can't control that. But it's not accurate to say that we can't do anything about it. That's what the devil wants us to believe. The devil wants us to believe that we can't do anything about it. That's wrong. You can't control what, they, what other people say and do, but what you can control is how you respond. How you respond. Now, this is true of someone who, uh, you know, cuts you off in traffic. You know, how are you going to respond, right? All of a sudden, your flesh starts getting... Happened to me the other day, right? This, this, this guy just decided he was going to get in front of me, right? And never mind I had the right of way. Never mind his lane ended, right? Never mind he was behind me, right? He was getting ahead of me. And if he had to run me off the road to do it, you know? Well, I just, you know, I feel a little that, you know, spicy mustard coming up inside of me. Like, I'm like, dude, what in the world, you know? And I thought, you know, it's, it's ridiculous. Just, you know, I learned this from Tom Roberts. Pray over him, right? Father, let that man get wherever he's going safe and blah, 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 right? But, but in other words... Even in silly, simple situations like that, um, if we let the enemy, right, manipulate the way we respond, we'll, we'll let it ruin our day. How about this? Anybody in here ever, like, cut somebody off in traffic and didn't mean to? Uh, you know, I mean, it's, you know, like, thought it misjudged the distance a little bit and you turn right in front of them and it was a little closer and they had to get on their brakes, you know. I mean, were you like, I'm just going to see if I can just, just absolutely tick this guy off and pull out in front of him? No, no, see. But see, we automatically think that they did it on purpose. They're, they're just trying to, you know, put me down in life. No, they don't want me to get ahead. Blah, blah. See, we, all this lies. The devil just jumps on that. What has happened? We're taking an offense. We're taking an offense. We're taking the bait that the devil set for us. And, and now notice what's happening. We're, we're responding in ways that can lead to all kinds of other things. See, what we don't realize is we, we get all out, bent out of, out of shape, out of sorts over something like that, you know, 11 o'clock in the morning, and we stew on it until we get home at 6 o'clock in the evening. Next thing you know, we're snapping our family's heads off. And the devil's just sitting back laughing about all that. Let me get back to it now. That's something simple and minor that can, that can become something more serious. But again, there are people in this room who have endured all kinds of physical abuse from other people. Horrible. Even, even some people have endured sexual and, and verbal and, and, and neglect and rejection and, and all these other things. It's still true, though, no matter how minor the potential offense or how serious and major the potential offense. We, we can't control what other people do, but we do have control over the situation in how we respond, how we choose to respond. It is the most powerful variable that you hold in your hands, and it is a, it is a variable that we can input into our life equation a hundred times a day, how we're going to respond. The Bible says a soft answer turns away wrath. Bible says, be swift to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. All of these are talking about, you know, let, let's just say, you know, like, you remember in school we'd have the test, fill in the blank, and, you know, wasn't it always cool when you had the word bank on the side, you know what I'm saying? 
I'd have teachers that give us a word bank, but they would give us more words in the word bank than we had answers on the test. I'm like, why'd you do that? You know, I mean, it's like, you know, but he gave us the word bank. <laughs> <clears throat> excuse me, give us the word bank over here. Well, it's kind of like the Bible has given you the word bank on how to respond, right? Soft answer turns away wrath, slow to, swift to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. We just go on and on with these, right? In other words, he's telling us how we need to respond in, in these situations. Speak the truth in love. I mean, I'm not here teaching all that tonight. I'm just trying to show you. Your response in any situation to any person is the most, most powerful variable that you have in your hands. And when I say control, that's a, that's a loose word that people could misunderstand. But one of the reasons, and, and I've been known over the years to ask groups of people, you know, how many of you are angry and don't know why? And um, it's a real problem in our world today. It's one that's increasing. There's a lot of uh, frustration in, in people's lives, underlying, seething frustration, frustrated with themselves, frustrated with other people, frustrated with God, frustrated with what have you. And, um, and that frustration fuels, it's like stoking the fires of, of anger. It's an anger that kind of simmers underneath the surface. And then it, you know, like a volcano, it just at certain inopportune times, it just erupts, you know, up out of us. And um, so from time to time, you know, ask people, you know, how many of you are angry? I'm not asking you to raise your hand tonight, but some of you in here are. You're angry and you don't know why. And, and it's, it's these dominant negative emotions that, that are percolating, you know, like one of those old coffee pots, you know, just beneath the surface in life. For a lot of people, this starts at a very early age when they find themselves in situations that they feel like they have no control over, where their parents are making decisions um, that, that they can't control or they don't feel like they have any input in or any say-so in. And so the deception of anger is anger makes us feel big. Anger makes us feel powerful. Anger makes us feel strong. Let me say it another way. Anger makes us feel like we're in control. Now, again, there's deception there because here's the reality of it. Are you ready? God created you to be in control. God created you to rule and reign in life, not rule and reign over other people, but rule and reign over circumstances and situations and rule and reign over devils and demons. You were created by God to be large and in charge. You were created by God to rule and reign in life. It's hardwired into your existence. And so anytime we're not in control or we feel like being victimized or, or, or somehow, you know, we're in a situation where there's, we can't do anything about, you know, this situation. It's, it's one the devil loves to try to get us in, into because it's extremely tormenting. It's, ex, it's extremely dissatisfying, fearful, all kinds, again, dominant negative emotions. But here's the reality of it. Here is the part that we do control. We control how we respond. When you look at, at, at men, you know, uh, like Daniel, and, and all the things that, that were, were done to him and, and all these, you know, strategies and things that were, were you know, contrived against him. And yet, look at, look at how he responded. Joseph, to me, might be the, the poster child for this. 
um, sold into slavery by his brothers, um, <laughs> falsely accused by his master's wife of trying to rape her, um, thrown into prison. Um, all these things, right, that he never signed up for. But if you, if you look at his life, things that he, he couldn't control, right, but what he could control was how he responded. And his response to all of those different circumstances and situations in his life caused him to continually rise to the top. Continually, the blessing and favor of God was upon him. So your response is your most powerful variable. And so in conclusion tonight, in conclusion tonight, do you see why attitude is so important? Because the attitude you have determines your response. Your response is your most powerful variable, right? How you respond. But your attitude towards a thing, your attitude towards a person determines your response. So if you have the wrong attitude, like the folks at Nazareth, they had the wrong opinion of Jesus, they had the wrong attitude towards Him. They didn't even bring sick people to Him for Him to heal them. That's how far away they were from understanding who He was and giving Him the place that He deserved and desired to have among them. And so their attitude caused them to respond to Him in a way that literally tied His hands and prevented Him from being able to do anything for them. But of course, the opposite is also true. The right attitude towards our Father, the right attitude towards Jesus, His Son, the right attitude towards the Holy Spirit, the right opinion of them, the right, giving them the right place in our lives will, will cause our faith to soar and will empower Him to do mighty works in our lives and in our families. Amen? Amen. Stand with me tonight. Praise God. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. Father, as we stand before you now, <clears throat> we receive your word, Father. We conscientiously now, deliberately, intentionally now, Father, um, say within our hearts that we receive your word, we receive this truth that you've presented to us tonight. And Father, we ask that you help us now examine our own attitude towards people or circumstances, situations, maybe things in our lives, Father. Lord, ways that we have responded um, that uh, only made things worse, didn't contribute to any kind of solution, didn't, didn't contribute to any kind of healing in our own lives, in our own hearts. Lord, we responded perhaps with bitterness. We responded perhaps with, with vengeance and, 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 and a, and a get-even spirit, um, seething in anger, reliving things that have been said to us and done to us. Father, these are all unacceptable variables in our lives, Father. So Lord, I thank you tonight for, for that one who's going to leave this place empowered by you and by your spirit in ways, Father, that they were not before they arrived here. Father, this is the, this is the great gift and the great power behind forgiveness and and our ability to forgive by faith and, and move on from things that have wounded us and hurt us in life. Father, to show mercy to those, Lord, who have treated us harshly, unkindly, or even abusively, Father. 
and, and to not hold against them any longer the wrong that they've done to us. Father, that's in our control. That's in our power to do. And it is so empowering and fulfilling, Lord, when we play that variable correctly. Father, I thank you that you're helping us recognize what it really means to give you place in our lives. And you're helping us, Father, to give you that place that you deserve, certainly on a Sunday night, but, Father, also on a Monday morning, on a Monday afternoon, mid midday on Monday, Father, and throughout the day. Lord, I thank you that you're teaching us how to live in life union with you, and it's a beautiful thing. In Jesus' name, amen and amen. Shake somebody's hand, hug somebody's neck, love somebody in Jesus.